Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. Aristotle's thinking on a variety of topics has influenced Western philosophy for over two millennia. His writings on ethics in particular, emphasizing human character and ethical psychology, continue to shape contemporary ideas about personal virtue and moral agency. My guest for this episode is philosopher Audrey Anton. Audrey is working this year as a fellow at the National Humanities Center on a new project that explores an area of Aristotle's ethical thinking that has been generally understudied. The characteristics of those who are morally warped, who rather than pursuing a virtuous life, have given themselves over to vice. Welcome to this podcast, Audrey. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So my first question has to do with setting the stage a little bit about how Aristotle characterizes different types of people and the relationship between knowing what's right and what's wrong and how that relates to actions. Can you outline for us what the four characters are that Aristotle talks about? Sure. Yeah. So Aristotle maintained that people develop characters throughout their lives There are four main types, and they are, as you said, distinguished based on what the person knows about the good, whether the person feels the right way about what's good, and, of course, whether they do the right thing, which is the one we usually jump to. And he thought that we should be trying to be virtuous, and in order to be happy, you have to be virtuous, according to Aristotle. So the virtuous person is a character who knows the good, feels appropriately about it, they want to do the right thing, and so, of course, they do the right thing routinely, regularly, reliably. The continent person is a step below the virtuous person, and the continent person is probably more like the average person, I think. Maybe Aristotle disagrees with me, and I'll get to that in a second. But the continent person knows what they should do. They know, you know, what they shouldn't do. They shouldn't steal. They shouldn't kill people. Um, And they do that. They do the right thing, but they don't feel perfectly about it. So they might do something they're supposed to do um, to look good to their friends or because they're afraid they'll get caught if they don't. Um, Or even maybe they want to be a virtuous person, but they also want to be a virtuous person for fame or glory. So there's always something a little emotionally off about the continent person. But they also reliably do the right thing and they know what they should be doing. Now the incontinent person, now we're getting a little bit farther down in the darkness, the incontinent person, like the virtuous person, like the continent person, knows what they ought to do. But that's it. They know what they ought to do. They might even decide or or trick themselves into saying, yeah, I'm going to do that. And somehow they punk out. They don't do it. They don't have follow through. Perhaps they get, you know, they're in a situation where courage is called for and they get too scared and they might say, yeah, I'm going to run in there and help that innocent person who needs me. Um, And then they get distracted by, you know, the appointment they don't want to be late for. Uh, So (laughs) the incontinent person Unfortunately, Aristotle thinks that that character is the most common. I am a little more optimistic than he is, but he says most people are between incontinence and continence, leaning towards the worse. (laughs) And then we get to the favorite of the discussion is the vicious person. 
And the vicious person is unique because out of all four character types you can develop as an adult human being, the vicious is the only one that is completely clueless as to what the good is. And when I say clueless, it's really important, and I cannot overemphasize the moral ignorance of the vicious person. And it's not clueless in the way that's harmless or adorable. It's a pernicious kind of ignorance. It's the kind of ignorance that undergrounds things like racism and hate crimes. It's that kind of ignorance. And so, of course, they don't feel the right way about the good thing, and they certainly never do the right thing. So I know you are interested in that fourth kind of person, the vicious person. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us a little bit about how Aristotle envisioned somebody becoming this way. Is it that a vicious person is just born depraved in this way, or is this a result of poor nurture? How does one become vicious? Fortunately, Aristotle was optimistic enough to say that no one is born this way. Um, part of that is because he also maintains that vice, that the character of vice, is something that you choose, and for him, choice is a technical term. It's not just something that you do voluntarily, it's something that you deliberately, rationally choose after thinking it over, and so babies can't do that. <laughs> babies don't make deliberative choices. Aristotle tells us that reason kind of develops as you get older. So you can't be vicious at birth because you can't choose it because everything that you get at birth is not up to you. And the reason why choice is so important to him is he thinks you are absolutely responsible for becoming vicious. So as you went down the hierarchy into sort of darker and darker territory, <laughs> um, you talked about the incontinent person as somebody who basically knows or has access to the difference between right and wrong, mm -hmm. but who has trouble following through and doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. How is the vicious person, who's also choosing, but how is the vicious person different from the incontinent person and in a way, it seems like the vicious brain might actually be a little bit more blissful to just be able to do, to give in to those base impulses. That's a great question. I like to say that there's a difference between who is suffering more and who is worse off because they're different. So imagine that you're an incontinent person and you're walking down the street and you see an innocent person being beaten brutally. And you know that you can probably do something about it. You should do something about it. And you say, you know what, I'm gonna go over there and tell that person to stop beating on that innocent person. And as you're about to do it, you, your fear just stops you like, a, like an invisible wall. And you are so worried about what the consequences could be for you that you end up not doing it. Now in that same situation, the person who's doing the beating is the vicious person. So the person who's doing the beating isn't even worrying about what's right. They just want to hurt someone, so they do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when we think about the term vicious, so vice I think we understand today as well. Um, but when we think about vicious, we might more commonly think of maybe a vicious animal or, or, or a nasty kind of creature. Mm -hmm. 
But for Aristotle, it means something different. How is the vicious person different from, for example, a subhuman creature or animal? That's a great question. He actually does talk about this. He talks about what he considers a bestial character. And it all boils down to what Aristotle thinks human nature is. And part of what human nature is, is what it's meant to be or what it's supposed to be when it goes right. And so Aristotle says that the human being is the rational animal. And so if everything goes well, when you grow up, your reason develops, you know what to do, you do the right thing, you make it a habit. When you make it a habit, you like it more, liking it more makes you do it more, and then you become virtuous. Well, reason is what makes us a human animal instead of a non-human animal. Now, the brute is actually somebody that Aristotle says lacks reason or has a corrupt reason. So the main difference between the brute and the vicious person is that the brute is somebody who is severely mentally disturbed and disabled and possibly to the point where they do behave like an animal. And the vicious person is very calculated and does what they want to do and a really good example would be somebody like Ted Bundy. People are famous. People are very fascinated with Ted Bundy. He's a serial killer. Um, he was very, very smart, but he was also smart enough not to commit crimes in front of the police, right? So part of being vicious is that you use your reason in the worst possible way to do really terrible things and get away with it. Now, a brute doesn't even have reason. So if you're a brutish person and you just lash out in anger, the fact that there's a police officer standing across the street is actually not going to be able to stop you because you'd have to have reason to realize, oh, I don't want to get caught doing this. So brutes are even more rare, says Aristotle, than the vicious person because they've lost all humanity. So let's shift for a moment away from the individual actor um, and turn to society. Mm -hmm. The descriptions that you've offered of the vicious person really uh, raise questions about what society is supposed to do about these kinds of people. Are they to be held morally culpable? Uh, can they be rehabilitated? How should society respond to these kinds of people? Excellent question. Well, first of all, society has to protect itself a little bit. Aristotle wasn't very sympathetic, so he would probably be fine with things like incarceration. In fact, he expected people would just exile them, send them off to some other, you know, some other polis that can deal with them. Um, so you do want to protect people from becoming victims. But I do think that Aristotle had the resources to have been kinder than he was. He had the resources in his political theory to say, yeah, we should try to make them better. Because as he points out, the job of the politician, and this might sound strange compared to what we think about politicians today, the job of the politician is to order a city such that it produces virtuous people because the job of a politician is to make the citizens happy. <laughs> and you cannot be happy if you're not virtuous. So if you have a citizen who's vicious, that citizen can't be happy. So you should try to reform them. However, I will say this. Do I think vicious people can get better? And did Aristotle? Yes. Did he think they would? And do I think that everyone will? No. I think that vicious people buy into their own hype. 
It's actually part of the condition that you fully believe that beating people for amusement is great. And if other people tell you it's not, you think they're silly <laughs> and maybe they're suckers. Um, so in a lot of ways, in order to be better, you have to think in ways that your character won't let you think. Because to become better, you have to do things that are closer to what a virtuous person would do, or at the very least, a continent person. But the vicious person has no motivation. So that would be the second thing I would say, is that society should try to rehabilitate vicious people by, yes, holding them accountable, and holding them accountable in ways that actually encourages them to do the kinds of things that could possibly undo this habit that's so entrenched. So it's through action that the reform would happen rather than trying to lift the ignorance directly. Yes, and that is an excellent follow-up, Tanya, because Aristotle talks about how what is really difficult with vicious people is that they are immune to argumentation. He explicitly says you cannot reason with them. <laughs> uh, and so it is the case that you almost have to have a breakthrough by having an experiential learning environment for them to then perhaps break out of that habit, maybe even become incontinent, and then they can hear the reasons. But until that point, they are not interested in what you have to say. How has this aspect of Aristotle's work been treated by other philosophers, and how are you intervening in the treatment of this topic? Well, unfortunately, not enough people have been studying this, as you pointed out in your intro. Um, part of the reason is Aristotle does not have a treatise on vice. He mentions the vicious character a lot, and it's sprinkled throughout all of his works. Aristotle mentions vice throughout a lot of treatises, but he doesn't actually hunker down and focus on vice for much more than a paragraph at a time. And that makes it something that maybe people don't want to study, but to me, that's what makes it really exciting because then I have to look at everything. So what most people have done before is they pick one vice. Um, for example, a lot of people will pick um, the vice of, um, it's called akolasia. It means being intemperate. And Aristotle talks a lot about this particular vice, or they'll talk about being unjust. And so they'll focus on those texts and try to extrapolate from them a theory of vice. Now, I think this is probably not the best way to go because Aristotle tells us that for every moral virtue, there are two corresponding vices on opposing extremes. So, for example, the virtue of courage. You can be a coward, which is obviously a vice. You can also be rash. And so the rash person is not courageous. They might look like they're courageous, but the rash person is the person who goes picking fights for no reason. They're not really fighting the just fight. Maybe they want to show off and I'll take them, you know, with two hands tied behind my back. That's silly. That's just putting yourself in danger. So when you think about how every virtue has two opposing vices, it's probably not a good idea to try to extrapolate on what vice is by picking any one because Aristotle makes it very clear in many places there is only one way to go well and to, to act well and to go right, but there are infinitely many ways to go wrong. And so that has been one of the reasons that I wanted to write a book-length treatment 
of Aristotle's theory of vice and treat the individual instances that he talks about. Because I do think that a lot of philosophers in the past have made a few errors and missteps um, by focusing on, and, and to their credit, they're writing an article of 3,000 words, they can't talk about everything. And so when you narrow your focus to that, you, you might draw conclusions that aren't fair or don't cover everything. And when we look at Aristotle's work more holistically, like you're doing now around viciousness, is it a more optimistic or pessimistic image that emerges on this particular character? Well, I'm not sure if I can put it in terms of optimism or pessimism. I would say it's more diverse and rich. It's a very heterogeneous group, actually. Um, when you think about good people, good people, they kind of act the same. <laughs> you, and, and you can predict that they'll do the right thing. And so the way that I'm presenting Aristotle's characters is that I actually think they become more and more heterogeneous the worse they become because there are so many ways that you can go wrong. So I guess in that sense it is pessimistic when you think about how many opportunities there are to become vicious. However, I do, I do have to say and give Aristotle a little credit here, he does insist they're not common, that there are a lot of people who are just incontinent. Um, so it is negative in the sense there's lots of ways to get there, but it's hopeful in that you don't have to go there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Aristotle's account of the vicious is still instructive to us today? And if so, what are some of the lessons we might take away from this work? I do think it's very instructive. Um, First of all, I think that even though it sounds pessimistic, I think it's actually very optimistic to say that the majority of people who do something bad are incontinent because the incontinent person can be cured. And what that means is the incontinent person feels remorse and regret and guilt. Aristotle is very clear about that. But remorse and regret and guilt means that they could feel the right way about the good because they at least have that residual emotion. And emotions motivate actions, and repetitive actions change characters and change how you see the world. So I do think that it's important to, when you look at people that have done something wrong, not to lump them all in this one class of, oh, they're bad people, they're evil, they're you know deplorables, forget it. I do think the vast majority of people who do wrong things are basically good people who did something bad. Um, so that is hopeful. <laughs> um, I also think Aristotle gives us a little bit of instruction on how to deal with the people who are thoroughly vicious, who do stand out, who aren't just people that knew better and then didn't follow through with the choice or were tempted to do something wrong. Because there are people that are so bad, you cannot reason with them. And you might even be able to think of examples in current events where people are trying to reason with somebody and you might as well be speaking a language they don't understand. <laughs> um, or you think, is this, are they hearing the same conversation I'm hearing? Because what they just responded had nothing to do with the question. So, <laughs> so you can see that there, there is a sense, I think, today to give everyone the benefit of doubt, and I think that's a good thing, to give everyone benefit of doubt that if you just explain to them why what they're doing is harmful, maybe they just don't know, right? And Aristotle would agree. He'd say, yeah, they don't know. But there's two ways to not know something, right? You cannot know because you don't have the facts. And you cannot know because you've decided that you are not going to learn them 
and you just don't want them to be true. Audrey, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Tanya. I've really enjoyed this. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.